Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star than zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone uh, to today's program, um, Update on the Treatment of Endometrial Cancer. And uh, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and SHARE Cancer Support. And we're delighted to be uh, collaborating with them on this, partnering with them on this program. Um, and uh, we have wonderful speakers on the program today, and our program is supported by GlaxoSmithKline. I really want to thank them for their support. Now, we have over 254 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, Oman, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global call as well. Now, before we uh, start the call today, um, I'm going to ask you just a few questions. So um, I'm just going to start by asking you a few questions, and I'm going to begin with our first question. And our first question is on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand new treatment options for endometrial cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five is the lowest rating. And this is for those of you who are live streaming the call, will be able to answer these questions. Thank you. And our next question is, I understand new treatment options for metastatic endometrial cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I know the importance of clinical trials for endometrial cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I know how to manage side effects, symptoms, and pain in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating five, the lowest rating. And the last question is, I understand the role of precision medicine and targeted treatments for endometrial cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five, the lowest rating. I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It helps us in planning future programs to get a sense of what you know coming into the program. And now we're going to move on to our wonderful speakers. We have just a fantastic faculty today. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Carol Runowitz. Dr. Runowitz is Executive Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, Professor, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Herbert Wertheim College of Medicine, Florida International University. And Dr. Ronowitz will be addressing overview of endometrial cancer, including diagnosing and staging in the context of COVID-19, current standard of care, the important role of clinical trials, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology and list of questions. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ronowitz. Thank you, and thank you for including me in this workshop. This is a very important workshop because cancer of the endometrium is the most common gynecologic malignancy in developed countries and the second most common in developing countries. We will not discuss uterine sarcoma, but we'll focus on cancer of the endometrium. The diagnosis is usually made by office endometrial biopsy 
as the woman will usually present with postmenopausal bleeding. Most women are postmenopausal when they uh, find out that they have endometrial cancer, but it also happens in premenopausal women. Even in the era of COVID, women will usually not defer evaluation of postmenopausal or irregular bleeding. Endometrioid carcinoma is the most common histologic type of endometrial cancer and of uterine malignancy overall. Endometrioid tumors tend to have a favorable prognosis and typically present at an early stage due to the evaluation of abnormal uterine bleeding. Other histologic types, such as serous or clear cell or grade three, um, as well as other types of uterine cancer are associated with a poorer prognosis. Dr. Kerr will discuss the pathology and the very exciting and emerging molecular subtyping with respect to prognosis, classification, and some very novel treatments. Following the biopsy, preoperative imaging may be performed in patients with tumors other than well-differentiated endometrial cancer. The surgical management of endometrial cancer involves removal of the uterus, the ovaries, fallopian tubes, and lymph node sampling in patients with advanced or high-grade endometrial cancers. The extent of lymph node sampling, whether it's a uh, selective lymph node sampling or a lymphadenectomy, has not been resolved in the scientific literature. There is also selective lymph nodes um, that can also be sampled, uh, as we do with other cancers. If at surgery, extensive disease is noted, an attempt at surgical saddle reduction by a gynecologic oncologist may be performed. A gynecologic oncologist is a person, such as myself, such as Dr. McCann, who are trained in these type of surgical procedures. A surgical stage is assigned to the patient based on findings at surgery and the pathology. The staging system is called FIGO staging system. It's the most commonly employed in the United States. And a stage is assigned to the patient depending on the extent of disease, which includes pathologic assessments of lymph nodes, uterine and cervical involvement, and any distant disease. The type and grade of tumor is determined by the pathologist. As noted, Dr. Kerr will discuss the emerging and very important role of pathology with respect to molecular subtyping, prognosis, classification, and eligibility for novel new therapies. The surgery is usually done with minimally invasive techniques, for example, robotic surgery, laparoscopic surgery, Thus, patients are often discharged the day of or perhaps the day after surgery in most cases. With COVID, patients' families may not be allowed to accompany the patient and must wait at home rather than in the hospital. And this can be very challenging. Remember, this is a disease of postmenopausal women, so many may be elderly, and that without a family member to support them can be very challenging for the patients. Once the pathology has been reported, a treatment plan is recommended. This is often done by a multidisciplinary tumor board, which may include the gynecologic oncologist, a pathologist, a medical, and a radiation oncologist. In addition, importantly, there may be social workers and other support teams present. Radiation therapy plays a role in endometrial cancer. It's applied either externally or intravaginally, and it may be used in patients with invasion of the muscle of the uterus or myometrial invasion, involvement of the cervix, high-grade tumors, or advanced stage disease confined to the pelvis. Several trials have done combining chemotherapy and radiation. Chemotherapy with carboplatin and paclitaxel are the most prescribed chemotherapies in these settings. It's very important to consider clinical trials. 
Clinical trials are research studies performed in people that are aimed at evaluating a medical, surgical, or, or perhaps a behavioral intervention. They are the primary ways that researchers find out if a new treatment, like a new drug, is effective. If standard treatments have not worked, I highly recommend that you consider a clinical trial. Clinicaltrials.gov, again, clinicaltrials.gov, is a database of privately and publicly funded clinical studies around the world. You can get access to new and novel therapies. Postoperatively, you will probably be asked to visit your physician, most likely the gynecologic oncologist, every three to six months for two years unless you have symptoms. Genetic counseling is recommended in patients with a history suggestive of a genetic type of cancer, such as hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer, also known as Lynch syndrome or HNPCC. There is a limited role for imaging studies in asymptomatic patients. 70% of patients with recurrent endometrial cancer will have symptoms. COVID-19 has increased the complexity of cancer care including treatment delays. Important issues include balancing the risks from treatment delay versus harm from COVID-19, ways to minimize negative impacts of social dis distancing during cancer therapy and appropriate and fairly allocating limited healthcare resources are all issues that the provider, the physician, the patient may encounter. As vaccinations become more widespread, we anticipate a return to normal care and follow-up. I personally recommend vaccination for all of my patients. During COVID, the use of telehealth has expanded to include pre- and post-operative counseling. Once a treatment plan is determined, the patient may periodically check in with the treatment team, but may also require the old-fashioned face-to-face visits. Telehealth is the use of digital information and communication technologies, which include computers, mobile devices, to access healthcare services remotely and manage your healthcare. These may be technologies you use from home or that your doctor uses to improve or support healthcare services. Here are a few tips to best use telehealth. Have the right technology. Prepare your medical information. Have your symptoms prepared. When did they start? What makes them better? What makes them worse? You should write them down. If possible, have some vital signs, such as your weight, your heart rate, maybe your respiratory rate, and have your phone available to take a photo and a trusted person available to assist you if need be. Write down your questions. Even if you're in person, I always tell my patients, you will get flustered to write down your questions. Make a list in advance of your visit so you don't forget anything. Make sure you're in a comfortable space and make sure you make a follow-up appointment either by telehealth or in person. Again, thank you for including me in this important workshop. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ronovitz. That was really just wonderful and actually just a wonderful um setting the whole context for today's program. So, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Georgia McCann, and Dr. McCann is Associate Professor of Gynecologic Oncology, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, University of Texas Health Science Center, San Antonio. And Dr. McCann will be addressing new treatment approaches for metastatic endometrial cancer, the role of precision medicine and targeted treatments, managing side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, and the benefits of communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. McCain. Thank you all for allowing me to participate in the workshop today. Um, the, uh, we'll be talking about uh, focusing on new treatments, options for metastatic endometrial cancer. Um, and as Dr. Renowitz um, alluded to in her discussion about endometrial cancer, when we when we talk about uh, endometrial cancers, um, there are two there are a few different histologic subtypes. And what that means is 
um, the way each cell or way the cancer looks under the microscope. And it's important because different histologies behave differently. Um, and as Dr. Runowitz alluded to, serous or clear cell histologies tend to behave more aggressive than the more common or the most common histologic subtype endometrioid. Um, so in terms of updates and treatments, we actually, within the past few years, have had a lot of exciting new developments for all of the histologies of endometrial cancer, um, and I'd like to review those here today. The first uh, that I'd like to mention pertains to serous endometrial cancer. Um, and again, that is more commonly known as what we would call a type 2 endometrial cancer or, again, one of the histologic subtypes of endometrial cancer that tends to behave more aggressively. Uh, and by more aggressive, we mean more likely to be metastatic at the time of diagnosis and more likely to recur after initial treatment. And so for that reason, it's very important for us to kind of continue to examine and test and try and find new novel treatments for this type of cancer. One of the things that has come up within the past couple of years um, is actually a targeted therapy called trastuzumab. And so commonly, metastatic endometrial cancer, regardless of histology, they're typically treated with a combination of platinum, typically carboplatinum, and, and paclitaxel-based chemotherapy. And typically, this chemotherapy is given for, on average, about six treatments, depending on the patient's response to chemotherapy. What we know, however, when we look at the serous endometrial cancers, we know that about one-third of patients will express um, or overexpress a marker called HER2-new. Now, when we, when we say the word HER2-new, we actually usually think of breast cancer, and it, it is a marker of breast cancer. Um, and so what we, what we found was that in this subset of patients with the HER2-new overexpression, could they or would they respond um, if we added a medication called trastuzumab to chemotherapy? Um, and so we know we have good um, published clinical trials um, that have demonstrated to us that when we add trastuzumab to standard chemotherapy for women with advanced or recurrent serous endometrial cancer, we actually know that we can get really good results in terms of um, response rate and, and survival. So it's really encouraging data that's really just been published within the past year for women with this type of cancer. Um, and the good thing, and this kind of ties into the second, my second point, talking point, so I'll kind of go back and forth between the two, but the way we know um, if, a, if a mutation, if an endometrial cancer, serous endometrial cancer has this mutation is we do this targeted mutational testing of, of the cancers. And so, um, and this is more commonly known as precision medicine. So in all patients with a serous endometrial cancer, we do recommend specific testing, genetic testing, to see if their cancer or if that cancer carries that specific mutation or overexpression so that we can offer trastuzumab as a part of their treatment. Um, now, moving on to um, the standard endometroid histology. So, again, like Dr. Runowitz said, is that the endometroid histology is the most common histologic subtype of endometrial cancer. Um, and uh, since it's the most common, um, you know, obviously we need to continue to evolve and, and try to expand our knowledge of this type of cancer and tr available treatment options. And so there are a couple. Of, there have been a couple of new exciting developments in terms of of treating this histologic type of cancer in either the advanced, so women that have stage three or four cancer at diagnosis, or those women who have recurrent endometrioid cancer. Uh, we have really exciting data about um, new treatment options, and that that really falls under the realm of immunotherapy. So a lot of immunotherapy has gotten a lot of news attention recently for multiple different cancers. Um, but again, within the past couple of years, we have really good data about its use in endometrial cancer. So a couple of points of interest, and again, this ties into precision medicine and genetic testing of cancer. So almost all endometrial cancers are screened initially 
for uh, mismatch repair um, testing, and, and Dr. Kerr will talk to you about a little bit about that. Um, but basically, in all patients with metastatic or recurrent endometrial cancer, we do recommend genetic testing of the tumor. And the reason why we, we recommend that is because we're looking for specific markers that will tell us whether or not we expect that cancer to respond to immunotherapy. Um, and so you'll hear words like mismatch repair deficient. You'll hear words like tumor mutational burden high. Those are all, it's all medical lingo, but we're basically trying to convey whether or not we think the cancer will respond to immunotherapy. So for cancers that are mismatch repair deficient or have a high tumor mutational burden, we know that they respond very well to immunotherapy by itself. The most common immunotherapy and the one that's FDA approved in this setting is pembrolizumab or commonly known as Keytruda. Um, we know that we can get really good response rates um, when we offer Keytruda to women with this, these specific mutations um, in, their end, in the endometrial cancer. And the good thing about being able to offer this type of therapy is the toxicity from treatment is much less. So the toxicity profile from prem, of pembrolizumab compared to standard chemotherapy um, is a lot less. And so the side effects are different, but in general, people tend to tolerate it more. So some of the common side effects of immunotherapy are diarrhea. So sometimes people can experience diarrhea. Sometimes they can experience thyroid problems. Sometimes they can experience anemia requiring transfusion, or they can also sometimes experience problems with their lungs. But in general, it is a therapy that is really well tolerated. Um, and oftentimes doesn't cause hair loss, it doesn't cause neuropathy or the bad bone pain that sometimes patients can experience with standard chemotherapy. So again, in summary, so women with um, mismatch repair deficient or high tumor mutational burden endometrioid, endometrial cancers, um, we offer uh, pembrolizumab as, as standard therapy. Um, for women that don't have those mutations, so for women who have mismatch repair proficient or they don't have high tumor mutational burden in their cancers, we still can offer immunotherapy, but we know that the response is better when we combine it with a medication called lenvatinib. Lenvatinib is a pill um, that is taken daily um, and it, the fancy word is that it's a, it's a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. The point being is that lenvatinib medication targets some of the most common receptors on, on, that we find on cancer cells. So it's another way of trying to kill cancer cells in combination with immunotherapy. The data um, supporting the use actually was just presented at our annual meeting this past weekend basically demonstrating that the response rates and, and the efficacy of this combination in endometrial cancers is very good. Now, that does come with worse toxicity, so worse side effects. So, I, you know, I just got done speaking about how pembrolizumab is really well tolerated, um, and it is. Um, however, when you combine it with lenvatinib, the toxicity can be higher. Um, and so it is not uncommon for women being treated with this combination of therapy to have to either start at a lower dose of the lonvatinib or kind of dose reduced as time goes on if they're having significant side effects. So it's always something that's important to communicate with your provider about any side effects that you're having. Because there are lots of, um, in addition to kind of managing the side effects, again, there's lots of tweaking that we can do with the medications themselves, again, in terms of reducing the dose or changing the frequency with which you get the medication and things like that. So open communication with your provider uh, and your care team is really, it's very important. And then moving on um, to one last kind of new treatment or not necessarily new, but probably something that really doesn't get highlighted very much in terms of endometrial cancer treatment is um, options for hormonal therapy. So there are a certain subset of endometrial cancers that will respond very well to hormonal therapy. And again, we identify these patients by doing the genetic testing of the tumor. Um, again, so it's another plug-in to make sure that if, you're, if you have 
you know, metastatic endometrial cancer or if your cancer has come back, it's always important to ask your provider if this genetic, if this genetic testing has been done. Um, in patients that carry certain mutations, we do know that they're a combination of medication called Everolimus and Letrozole um, is, can work very well in a subset of patients with specific mutations. And again, the option of this therapy is appealing because the side effect profile is very different than standard chemotherapy, and in some patients may be easier to tolerate. So again, it's very important um, to inquire with your provider about whether or not genetic testing of the tumor has been done because as we, as we discover more about endometrial cancer, we're discovering more and more that it's really driven by the molecular profile, the genetic makeup of this specific cancer, and we can take advantage of that genetic makeup by offering these different targeted therapies. In terms of managing side effects, symptoms, and discomfort and pain, again, it's very important to keep an open communication with your provider, with your care team. So your GYN oncologist, but also your chemotherapy nurse that you see, um, anybody really that you, that you kind of see routinely throughout your care, it's important to express any symptoms, even if you don't think anything of it or you don't find it that bothersome, it's always important to just voice it because there may be good options or therapies or anything that we can offer to help alleviate some of those bothersome symptoms. Um, in terms of, you know, managing side effects, um, for the new targeted therapies, like I said, the immunotherapy is very relatively easy to tolerate. Um, and very, very few women have, you know, side effects that result in discontinuation of therapy. But it's always important to communicate with your provider. Um, the other thing that I find helpful, especially in women with metastatic cancer or cancer that's recurred, is collaboration with a palliative care doctor. Now, when, when I say the word palliative care, a lot of people think um, hospice care or things like that. And that's not necessarily what we're talking about. So palliative care, there are a whole group of doctors um, who actually come with a team. So it's a team made up of doctors, nurses, social workers, other supportive people that really focus on the patient and not necessarily the cancer. So oncologists, we're very good at focusing on the cancer and treating the cancer and offering therapies and investigating, you know, new therapies. Um, and we do that, we do a very good job of that, but then you have, if you have your own palliative care team, then they're very good at managing the symptoms and the side effects of treatment and the symptoms that have come along with having cancer in general. So they're good at managing pain, they're good at managing nausea, they're good at managing neuropathy, insomnia, depression, all of those things. They do a really phenomenal job of managing alongside the oncologists who are focusing on the cancer treatment. So if you don't have a palliative care physician, it's always a good idea to inquire whether or not it's an option for you. I recommend all of my patients establish care with our palliative care providers because they really do um, provide that additional level of support that I think patients need and they benefit from. And we actually have good data showing that when we focus on patients quality of life and their symptom management, that they actually live longer um, because we're supporting them through, um, through their treatment and not just focusing on the cancer treatment itself. And so, again, I think kind of just in, in summary, it's important to um, have an open level of communication with your doctor for many reasons. One, you want to know, you know, do I have targeted treatment options that are available to me? Have we done genetic testing of my tumor? Are there options that I can, that I, options for treatments that I can try to help with my symptoms of treatment and cancer-related symptoms? And do I have the option of visiting with a palliative care team? So it's always, I always tell patients that, you know, you know your bodies, you know what you need, um, and it's always a very good idea to be your own advocate. And so I always encourage my patients to do that. Um, and that, that'll summarize kind of the few the points that I wanted to take, and um, hopefully at the end, if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. 
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. McCain. That was an extraordinary, wonderful presentation, actually, and wonderful focus on both the treatment and all the treatments for um, uh, metastatic endometrial cancer, but also the emphasis on symptom and pain management, um, which is often delivered best by a palliative care team, and people often don't quite understand what that word means. It used to be called a pain team or it was renamed palliative care, and I think people, um, it's, a, it's a complicated word to know or to say, and I think you did a wonderful job explaining it. And it is true that people who do get really excellent symptom and pain management along with their cancer treatment do much better. So it's such an important point that you've made. And I thank you for that, Dr. McCain. And I hope all of you then, if your doctors recommend that you, in addition to your treatment, see another team of people, they are really very good at managing it. And let's face it, we want you to continue on with the really best quality of life that you can have during your treatment. That's really important. The momentum of your life is very important in the midst of treatment. So thank you, Dr. McCain. That was really uh, ex exceptional. Thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Kerr. And Dr. Kerr is a pathologist, um, and she is with Hospital Pathology Associates PA, Division of Cytopathology, Gynecologic and Perinatal Pathology, Molecular Diagnostic Lead Pathologist for Next Generation Sequencing Development and Practice, Alina Health Laboratory, a part of Abbott Northwestern Hospice, I'm sorry, Hospital, um, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And Dr. Kerr um, is really our only pathologist that we have on most of our programs when she speaks, so we really have um, utilized her a great deal. And she will be addressing the role of the pathologist, understanding the molecular portrait of endometrial cancer, next generation sequencing, and understanding your pathology report. So it's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kerr. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mesner for inviting me to the conference. And thank you so much to the previous speakers, Dr. Runowitz and Dr. McCann, for introducing uh, some of the topics that I'll be covering in more detail. It's my great pleasure to discuss, in particular, endometrial cancer from a pathologist's perspective, which is what I do every day. So what is a pathologist, or who is a pathologist, and what do they do? So a pathologist is a doctor, like the rest of the doctors on your cancer team, who uh, goes to medical school, and then after medical school specializes in the testing that occurs in a hospital laboratory. So not only the blood tests that you get, uh, blood transfusions, things like that, but also um, the analysis of tissue under a microscope to determine if cancer is present uh, and how far perhaps that a cancer has spread depending on which specimens are submitted to the laboratory. So the first encounter you might have with a pathologist during your lifetime might even be something as simple as a pap test. So a pap smear test is something that a pathologist reads and notes uh, whether there are abnormal cells. In the context of endometrial cancer, pap tests occasionally do uncover endometrial cells that shouldn't be there or atypical glandular cells that could result in further evaluation. Most often, though, as Dr. Runowitz had covered, uh, women often present with abnormal vaginal bleeding, either intermenstrual bleeding or in postmenopause um, abnormal bleeding. And in those cases, a doctor will often recommend tissue sampling of the endometrium or the lining of the uterus uh, to submit to pathology for evaluation. And so once a tissue sample is obtained from the endometrium, it's sent to the pathology lab. And in the pathology lab, what we do is we take the tissue and put it into wax blocks, or what's called formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded blocks. And then careful tissue sections are obtained. These thin sections are obtained from that wax and placed on glass slides. And then those glass slides are reviewed by a pathologist under the microscope. Um, during the course of an endometrial cancer surgery later on, if endometrial cancer is diagnosed, uh, the uterus, ovaries and fallopian tubes, lymph nodes, uh, and um, other abdominal tissues such as the omentum may be sent to the pathology laboratory for evaluation by the pathologist. And what they do is they take a look at the tissues um, with the naked eye, or what we call gross examination. And then based on that gross examination, we take tiny little um, sections from the tissue to look at representatively under a microscope. So we can't look at all of the tissue under a microscope. We target areas to look at under the microscope to determine uh, what cancer type is there and where it has spread. 
if anywhere. Uh, and so after, you know, after that process, I might be looking at 20 or 30 or more glass slides under a microscope to create uh, what you receive on the other end as a pathology report. So pathology reports are either uh, most commonly now in electronic form, but also often uh, in paper copies. Uh, and they have fields in them that are fairly standardized. So there's usually a diagnosis field in the report. There's a diagnosis comment, gross and microscopic description of the tissues, uh, and staging information in, in a standardized form called the synoptic report. The diagnosis contains sort of the concise summary of the tumor classification and grade. Uh, and then there's usually a diagnosis comment that explains any challenges that were specific to your particular case in terms of the diagnosis or a staging decision. And then the, the synoptic report covers um, what Dr. Runouts had described as standard staging. So based on the extent of disease within the tissues submitted, the tumor is assigned a stage, and that staging information is really critical to determining whether further treatment is needed or whether the patient should just have observation. And so um, that's just a brief overview of the role of the pathologist in endometrial cancer. Now I'll move on to um, some of the genetic testing that's really important in the classification of endometrial cancer now. Um, so when I started out in training, which wasn't, uh, I guess was more than a decade ago now, um, the way we talked about endometrial cancer was really in terms of type 1 versus type 2 endometrial cancer. So type 1, um, as previously mentioned, being um, usually endometrioid type, of lower grade, less aggressive, and driven by a hormone called estrogen. So estrogen can be in excess in the body um, due to a number of factors, including obesity or possibly hormone replacement therapy and postmenopause. And this can lead to um, the growth of a tumor that um, has started. This is vers versus type 2 cancers where we don't really understand the risk factors as well, and those tend to occur in older patients and uh, tend to be a serous or clear cell or carcinosarcoma subtypes. Now that we've done uh, more genetic testing in tumors, including next-generation sequencing, we understand that this type 1 versus type 2 classification is probably overly simplified and that there are tumors in each of those type 1 versus type 2 types that actually fall into a particular genetic category. So for example, one of the most common categories in endometrial cancer that's important for therapy is what's previously been mentioned as mismatch repair deficient endometrial cancer. Mismatch repair deficient endometrial cancer is a cancer that accumulates mutations over time due to um, something abnormal in the repair mechanism of the DNA. So DNA is mutated all the time in the endometrium and gets repaired by the body naturally. And when there's something that interferes with that repair mechanism, we call that mismatch repair deficiency. Mismatch repair deficient tumors accumulate lots and lots of DNA mutations, and those DNA mutations result in proteins that can be abnormal proteins that can be recognized by the immune system. And so when the immune system recognizes these mismatch repair deficient tumors, they might naturally um, mount an immune response to the tumor, but it might not be enough to contain the tumor. And so oncologists can use immunotherapy, which is a therapy that enhances the immune system's response to the tumor to kill the cancer cells. And Dr. McCann had talked about that a bit. Um, another type of endometrial cancer that also may respond to immunotherapy, although um, the immune system uh, we think contains it better, are pole-E mutated tumors or ultra-mutated tumors that result in a very high tumor mutation burden. So I think of ultra-mutated, poly-mutated, high tumor mutation burden tumors kind of in the same way as mismatch repair deficient tumors in terms of possible responses to immunotherapy. It's also notable that a subset of mismatch repair deficient endometrial cancers are seen in women who have Lynch syndrome, which is, which is it a predisposition to developing endometrial cancer. And those women often um, have great benefit from meeting with genetic counselors to discuss how they can manage 
both their own cancer risk going forward and, and in their family members. Um, another type of endometrial cancer that Dr. McCann talked about was serous carcinoma, and there's a, there's a molecular grouping of endometrial cancers now known as serous-like endometrial cancer. And as she had said, a subset of those will show overexpression of, of a protein called HER2. When those cancers overexpress HER2, um, they can be targeted with a certain therapy called trastuzumab, and so that can be important in the serous category. And then, um, you know, there are tumors that don't fall into any of those categories and are uh, endometrioid carcinomas that express estrogen receptor. And so we're more commonly now in advanced endometrial cancers, especially low-grade endometrial cancers, doing estrogen receptor testing. And when tumors express estrogen receptor, uh, it tells your oncologist that they could possibly respond to hormonal modulation treatments. Uh, and so that's just another treatment option that's out there for patients who have advanced endometrial cancer that express estrogen receptor. Now, next-generation sequencing broadly can also be used in endometrial cancers that do not have any of these mutations or that may have some of these alterations, but we're still looking for another therapy uh, with a tumor that has not responded to other therapies. And so broad, broadly, next-generation sequencing can uncover rare mutations that might be targetable, especially as part of a clinical trial. And so increasingly, uh, when standard therapies have failed, we're doing what's called next-generation sequencing, which is basically doing a lot of different molecular tests all in the same test to figure out whether a tumor has a target that may respond to a particular type of therapy, especially as part of a clinical trial. I wanted to mention just a couple of resources related to pathology. Uh, and Dr. Uh, Mesner can, can um, give you this information also after the conference. Um, one is called yourpathologist.org, yourpathologist.org, which is a resource from the College of American Pathologists explaining how laboratory testing works and how to read a pathology report. Uh, another resource that's out there particularly related to genetic testing in cancer is called outreach.amp.org outreach.amp.org. This is an online resource from the Association for Molecular Pathology, particularly related to laboratory testing, genetic testing in cancer. And I think you'll find that to be helpful also in answering some of these really detailed questions about genetic testing in cancer. So uh, that was my brief overview of how a pathologist is involved uh, in the endometrial cancer care team. This concludes my remarks, and I'll turn the conference back over to Dr. Mesner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, um, Dr. Curran. Could you just repeat the um, those the because we're going to actually in, in Survey Monkey we're going to send out to everybody an evaluation, um, and so we'll include um, these references as well as the clinical trial references and anything else that was mentioned during the will be mentioned during the program. So, it's yourpathologist.org. Is that correct? But the second okay. one. Yeah, the second one is outreach. Dot amp dot org, and that's dot am amp the association for molecular pathology oh, amp yeah okay excellent outreach dot amp dot org yeah correct okay perfect all right well so okay thank you so much and that was an outstanding presentation really um, and so important now really the role of pathologists and I think that Dr Kerr really does. I demonstrate to you how important they are in your entire um, treatment, and so it's just and, and really it helps. It really what what the pathologist discovers really informs their treatment. So thank you so much, Dr. Kerr, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A as well. And our next speaker is Ms. Kitty Silverman, and Ms. Silverman is with the Uterine Cancer Program. She's Uterine Cancer Program Director, Share Cancer Support, and she'll be addressing the Share Cancer Support, supports free programs and services, and we have partnered with um, Share Cancer Support in offering this program to all of you, and so I'm delighted to have uh, Ms. Ms. Silverman on board. And so it's my pleasure now to introduce my esteemed colleague, uh, Dr. Ms. Kitterman, Ms. Silverman. <laughs> 
<laughs> Thank you so much, Carolyn. Uh, we're really pleased to have the opportunity to partner with Cancer Care in today's educational program. SHARE is a national nonprofit founded over 45 years ago that supports, educates, and empowers women affected by breast and metastatic breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and uterine and endometrial cancer. And we started our endometrial cancer program in the spring of 2020, and we're very pleased to offer a variety of free services in this area. We have four different peer-led um, endometrial cancer support groups, which are currently being held by a Zoom or telephone. The first is a general group. Um, the second is a group for women of African descent. And we also have another group for women who are newly diagnosed and in treatment. And lastly, we have a young women's gynecologic cancer support group, which was designed for women diagnosed under the age of 40 with either endometrial or ovarian cancer. We also have a helpline, which is staffed by trained endometrial cancer survivors who can lend support, give information, and share experiences. And the number for that helpline, which also will be on our website, which I'll give you in a minute or two, um, but the helpline number is 844-582-6005. Um, share also holds quarterly online educational webinars, as well as additional programming throughout the year, including events like today's, where we partner with other organizations. Our webinars, these quarterly endometrial cancer webinars, um, cover, give the latest information about research, treatment, as well as strategies for maintaining well-being and quality of life from top oncologists and experts in the field. And all webinars are recorded and can be found on our website. And a couple of other things, we have a online um, uterine endometrial cancer community on Health Unlocked. We also are partnering with an organization called Bagot, which we created a special um, endometrial cancer bag with information and resources for patients and caregivers. And we also uh, partner with Emerging Med to offer endometrial cancer patients a free and personalized confidential clinical trial matching service. So for information on all of these programs, you can visit us at sharecancersupport.org. That's all one word, uh, sharecancersupport.org. And on the website, you can sign up uh, to receive our bimonthly uterine endometrial cancer newsletter which provides information about all of our programs as well as research updates. And if you have any questions at all, please feel free to email us at uterineprogram at sharecancersupport.org. Uterineprogram at sharecancersupport.org. And thank you again. We're very excited to have had this chance to partner with, with Cancer Kids. And just so everyone knows, thank you so much, Ms. Silverman. That was excellent and a wonderful resource for everybody. And actually, I will, when you get the Survey Monkey, we'll include all the information that was given out, all the websites, all the phone numbers. You'll have everything that you need. Um, so thank you so much. That was really wonderful to partner with you. It's been a long-term goal of ours. So happy that we're doing this today, and we'll do it again in the future. Um, and um, I just, I'm Carolyn Mester. I'm Director of Education with Cancer Care. And I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care. Um, Cancer Care is a national organization. It's founded in 1944, so it's about 77 years old. Um, and we offer a comprehensive array of free programs and services. And what does that mean? Um, we do have a Hope Line, 1-800-813-4673. And many people call our HOPE line and speak to our oncology social workers. Um, we currently have 35 oncology social workers who are answering our lines. Um, and um, we cover all cancers, um, uh, all ages, um, and work with both people living with cancer, cancer survivors, caregivers. We also have a children's program, I can't care for kids program, helping kids who live in families where there is cancer. So we cover the whole age group from from very young to all ages. Um, so that um, so that we actually um, cover the entire age spectrum of people. Um, and so um, we offer uh, just practical and financial and co-payment assistance. It can be very helpful to people. 
um, at this point. Um, we also have a case management unit that really helps people with resources um, to get what they need. If we don't have it, we will connect you and not just give you a list of places to contact, but actually take you there um, somehow virtually so that you're connected um, to that place. We want to be sure you get that resource that you need. Um, we also offer a host of online support groups. We have many online support groups, um, and those are available to people um, nationally. Um, and uh, we also um, offer, of course, these workshops that, that you're on today, many of them throughout the year. And we also offer publications and, of course, a website as well, www.cancercare.org. So that's just a, a listing of some of our programs. And, again, at the, end of the, at the end of this, you'll be getting all that information in the SurveyMonkey evaluation that you'll be completing as well. Now, we, we do want to move on to the Q&A, but before we do that, we just want to ask you a few uh, questions. Um, and so I'm going to ask you just a few questions just at the end just to see um, um, what you've been able to take away from the program today, what you've learned. So as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of treatment options for endometrial cancer. So one is the highest rating and five is the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident in participating in the new treatment options for metastatic endometrial cancer. Again, one is the highest rating, five is the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I am more likely to participate in clinical trials for the treatment of endometrial cancer. High is, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in working with my healthcare team to manage endometrial cancer treatment side effects, symptoms, and pain in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this will be the last question. As a result of this workshop, I am more likely to try precision medicine and targeted treatments for endometrial cancer. Again, one, the highest rating, and five, the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It helps us to better plan programs going forward for you. So, um, so thank you so much for that. And now we're going to move on to the Q&A, and I'm going to ask Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to start to take your questions, and I'm going to ask Michelle to explain to you how to queue up for questions. Michelle? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And we have a number of online questions. So um, this first question um, for Dr. Runowitz, how does COVID-19 specifically affect endometrial cancer patients and survivors? Uh, so COVID-19 doesn't specifically affect um, any particular type of patient with cancer or cancer survivors. What it can do is challenge the care of the patient. Um, if the patient is immunocompromised, that is if the patient has chemotherapy, for example, and the white blood cell counts are down, then the patient, if the patient does get any virus or COVID-19, that patient can be more ill. But it doesn't specifically target patients with endometrial cancer. Okay, excellent. And, um, and 
Dr. McCann, could you comment? There's another question here about the vaccine, if you could comment about that as well. Uh, the COVID vaccine. <clears throat> In terms about of eligibility and whether or not patients should get it? Yes. Yeah, so I recommend to all of my patients, um, either with active cancer undergoing treatment or if they're under surveillance for, for endometrial or other cancers, I also recommend that they receive the vaccine. Um, and, it, and it should not affect their treatment or their, or their surveillance at all. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, a question for Dr. Kerr. Um, are there pathologists that specialize or are considered experts in genetic testing of cancer tissue? Yeah, so a great question. Um, there actually is a subspecialty within pathology called molecular genetics pathology. Uh, and this is a program where pathologists who are trained generally in pathology learn about how to do genetic testing in tissues and also in the blood for hereditary predisposition to cancer. Uh, so there is a subspecialty within pathology called molecular genetic pathology, and those are the pathologists, including myself, who went through that training, who are often in charge of the uh, molecular laboratories at hospitals. Excellent. So we're lucky to have you on the call today, and there and there is a subspecialty like this. So, so just so people know, so that uh, patients can ask for that, or what um, what would you recommend? So. Um, Molecular laboratories, um, by regulation, need to be overseen, at least have the next-generation sequencing part of, part, part of testing interpreted by, by a pathologist who is trained in, in genetic testing. And so um, there's no need to particularly ask that a pathologist be involved that has that subspecialty training. It should be happening automatically by regulation. Okay, excellent. Um... And um, uh, this is a question, I think, for Ms. Silverman, actually. Um, I have a recurrence of endometrial cancer and undergoing chemo, radiation, brachytherapy. I have been trying to find an active online community, but only find spotty groups. Are there any large active forums that um, I can act, would share, have anything like that? Yeah, we do. We partner with um, a, a uh, organization called Health Unlocked, and if you go onto the Health Unlocked website, um, you can find the Share Uterine Cancer Community on there. And we started it about three or four months ago, so it's just in the middle of growing, but we have about 80 members so far, and you can there talk to, to people who've been diagnosed with endometrial cancer, and we also post about other activities and education, et cetera. So we definitely welcome you to go and take a look on uh, Health Unlocked. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks very much. And we'll, you'll give us that reference and we'll include it in our, um, sure. in our, um, in our, in, in the SurveyMonkey um, uh, information. And then um, we have a question, um, and this one would be for Dr. McCain. How successful has Lenvima and Keytruda been on high-grade serous stage for endometrial cancer? That's a very good question. Um, and the, the short answer that is that it is effective. Um, so in these trials that are that are recently being published and presented at our annual meetings, the serious endometrial cancers are being included in this subset of patients. Um, and so the data that's kind of reported about good effects, you know, good outcomes with treatment with Lumvina and Pembro um, does include serious endometrial cancers. And there's a follow-up question, Dr. McCain, also um, is if on Keytruda, how much less effective is, is the COVID vaccine? Is there any, does it affect the effectiveness of the vaccine? It does not. Not There's okay. no data to suggest that, that is the case. Good question. Excellent. Okay. These are important questions. We would want someone not to get the vaccine when it would be very helpful to them. Okay. Right. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and then... Um, So this is a question for uh, Dr. Runowitz. How do I bring up new treatment options to my doctor or care team? So one thing 
that I think you have to lose is fear of insulting your um, doctor or healthcare provider. Um, because in my opinion, it should be a partnership. And I welcome patients that come, and they often come with reams of paper. And although we may not have time in that particular office visit, I may take the, the papers from the patient and go over them later and then schedule a follow-up with that patient. So never be fearful of getting a second opinion or um, asking questions. It's your right, and if your doctor or um, nurse practitioner or healthcare provider doesn't respond favorably, I would start looking around for another doctor because you can't be threatened by an informed patient. It's a partnership. Excellent. Excellent point. And this will be the last question for Dr. McCain. Um, how is the standard of care determined and by whom? <laughs> Could you just adjust that? We, I know we use that term a lot. And I, and <laughs> yeah. That's a good question. So standard of care is I mean, it's established by well-designed randomized clinical trials. But a lot of us will use what we call the NCCN guidelines. Um, and those guidelines are put forth by a multidisciplinary group, including gynecologic oncologists, radiation oncologists, and the like. And so they will put forth recommendations regarding um, what we call standard of care. So, and, and it's, they give it for all scenarios. So a patient with a newly diagnosed advanced endometrial cancer, these are the recommendations. A patient with, you know, a recurrent endometrial cancer, these are the recommendations in options for treatment. So um, it's all, you know, the the recommendations are, are based on randomized control, controlled trials, which, again, which is why it's so important to participate in them, um, and then also a consensus of a large multidisciplinary group of pr providers. The uh, website is www.nccn.org. And we'll also include that for everyone with information about that. They are one of the collaborating organizations on all of our programs, and so we will be sure that you we will highlight that as an um, as an, a resource. Um, so that in addition to this program today, and this program is recorded, so it's available as a podcast, so you can listen to it after the program, um, or share it with a family member or friend, um, and um, it should be up for at least a year, if not longer, and. Um, and we will have all those resources for all of you um, um, when you get your evaluation as well, so you'll have that. Um, I want to thank our speakers. You've been actually phenomenal. Um, and I want to thank our participants as well. In terms of our speakers, um, I wondered if each of you um, would just um, give our participants a takeaway of what you'd like them, something you feel is important that you said or, um, during the program today. And so I'm going to start with Dr. Runowitz, if you would just um, – uh, provide a, a takeaway of, of what you'd like people to remember? I think an informed patient is your best uh, option. It's better for the doctor and it's better for the patient. You know what questions to ask. So going on to these resources that we have presented today is incredibly valuable for you as a patient. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Dr. McCain? Yeah, I will... Absolutely echo what Dr. Runowitz says. Um, and again, so the more information the patient has, the, the better the communication and the better the treatment is. There are plenty of times where I'm in the office and a patient will bring up, you know, mention something to me or, you know, anything that, you know, gets us thinking and talking and, you know, sometimes certainly changes our management or changes the direction of our management in one way or another. So, um, and I think it's important to, um, you know, I think it's important to ask about the genetic testing of the tumor because I think that as we move forward, that is really going to play a crucial role in how we treat endometrial cancer. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, Dr. Kerr? Yes, so thank you. I, uh, I want to encourage all the patients on this call to have your pathology reports, a copy of your pathology reports, either on paper or electronically with you, especially if you're transferring care to a new facility or you're seeing multiple doctors. Uh, and the same goes for your molecular reports. 
Um, so as a pathologist, I run into situations where um, a cancer might have occurred so long ago that we've forgotten about what the, what the pathology report said, and that information is so critical should you have a new lesion that needs to be biopsied and so forth. So keep your pathology reports, keep a copy with you, keep your molecular reports with you so that they're available for future care. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent point. And Ms. Solomon, do you take away? Um, yeah, we're just really pleased um, to have added our endometrial uterine cancer program services uh, to what we offer at SHARE, and we found that there's really been a need. So many patients have reached out to us or joined our groups or called the helpline and said that they hadn't um, had a specific uh, place to go for endometrial cancer. So we really welcome you if you are in that position to to join us and to become you know, part of our communities. And thank you all so much for, for uh, joining today's call. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, so, I, again, I want to thank all of our speakers. You've really been phenomenal. And um, I, I, and I have to say that our participants, those questions were really wonderful questions that you all asked, really important questions. And um, I know there are many more of you in queue who didn't get a chance to ask your questions, but um, so I just want to comment about that. For those of you who had a chance to ask a question or for those of you who um, heard someone else's question or who asked a question, please take the information you've learned today back to your treating healthcare team so they can most apply it to you since they know you, of course, the best. We hope that you've learned some things that are useful to you in your own care and that you can take this back to your treating healthcare team. We also want you to know that there is support out there, both through your healthcare team, and you've heard that from all of our speakers in terms of the support that the team offers itself, your physician as well as the team members. And you also have two nonprofit organizations that have offered support, and there are many, many others out there, so that we would not want anyone to leave this program feeling that you're alone. We want you to know that you're part of a very large community of support, and we are all here to help you. And um, we, we know there are moments when you do feel terribly alone and sad. However, we want you to know that all of us are a phone call away or a website away um, from contacting us. And um, it's important that you take advantage of all of those services for yourself. And also to work with your healthcare team. Um, things often seem to happen in the evening and weekends, questions. Let them ask them who you can contact so you have a sense of who on your team is available for you to contact um, evenings and weekends. And that's a good question to ask. So, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.